0: You know, it's really interesting to consider that in the context of the fact that those contracts leaked from Pfizer, which were showing Pfizer basically telling um, countries in the global south that you have to put up collateral above and beyond what like G7, G8 nations are doing in order to secure vaccine supplies um, asking for stuff like them to put up their embassy and to indemnify Pfizer in case of even like Pfizer's intentional wrongdoing and harm because there's, you know, a- and of course, like Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla is like going around being like, well, only rich countries. Bought the mRNA vaccine because it's you know high technology and expensive, and it was really designed for rich countries anyways. And mm-hmm. I asked the poor countries, and they just didn't want it. And it's like, well, that belies the fact that the 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 ask of these poor countries versus the rich countries were you know the administrative burdens on the, on securing the vaccine were like three four times what they were for the United States because of this sort of manufactured. A uh, position of being um, exploitable and extractable, and not you know worthy of the respect from this like you know global uh, supernatural. I don't know. It's like an Pfizer's like an extra state property, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know one of the things that the kind of lens of of anti imperialism really reorients us to as well is that right? Is like is the relationship between the state and capital. Um, because I think there's often multiple things happening. Um, And of course, you know, there's the kind of capital and corporate capture of the state. But I think oftentimes the kind of leftist analysis that suggests that the state is like withered away and the state has no control over itself. um, And, you know, capitalist interests control the state. What imperialism reminds us is that actually state and capital have always worked together, right? Mm -hmm. And particularly if we look at, like you point out, um, the relationship to the global South, the relationship to extraction around the world reminds us um, that the state is completely complicit in that, that it's not just that it's capitalists running around extracting and making a profit, um, but also that they're buttressed by the state and state's imperial interests of ensuring the underdevelopment, the deliberate impoverishment and extraction and exploitation um, that... You know, it relies on, right? Like, there's no other way to put it, other than the wealth of the West relies on um, mm-hmm. the exploitation and plunder of, you know, people within its borders and people beyond its borders, and it needs to sustain that through imperialism, and that requires uh, the state and capital to to work in tandem in order to maintain that system of deep exploitation. And I appreciate that you you know you're bringing up Pfizer because there just there hasn't been a lot of attention in recent years on the economic dimension of imperialism, right? Like mm-hmm. of organizations like the World Trade Organization. Um that only 20 years ago were like the target of social movements, right? Like the WTO protests right. in Seattle and then the FTAA in Quebec City, but then there's really just been a turn away from that internationalism. And so I you know I just appreciate that you've been noting the internationalist kind of aspect of struggle and also this current reality which you know, we, we have to deal with, which is, you know, we need the abolition of these of these institutions.
0: Absolutely. I I mean, we wholeheartedly agree here. And I, I think, you know, one of the things, obviously, this is like probably most immediately evident and like top of mind right now for people in the context of, of what's going on in Palestine. But it, it was so interesting to me to read um, some of what you were writing about sort of the historical connections and the early, um, the early like anti-black connections that you have between immigration laws in the United States. And, um, you know, the sort of idea where citizenship was weaponized against indigenous struggles. And, you know, it's just so fascinating. Uh, we had, uh, Adam Johnson on the show for the most recent episode, and we were talking about the sort of lie of the two state solution. And, um, mm the the sort of perpetuating genocide that's going on whether it's a like quote unquote legal war crime or not and that mm-hmm. there's a sort of like that legality is really um you know it's conditional right mm-hmm. and you write about this a lot in your book as well which is the idea that people have to be made illegal um would you would you be open to getting into some of the sort of like foundationally anti-black early stuff like the Dawes Act at all
1: yeah sure i'd be happy to and i think you know for me um Thinking through that really came from a number of of different places, you know, uh, and two of them, in brief, were just that. A lot of times we think of uh, indigenous struggle, um, black liberation struggles, and and migrant struggles as separate, right, um, or at mm-hmm. best, kind of as parallel struggles in solidarity with each other, like tied together by this loose idea of racial justice. Um, But, you know, we don't see them as made through each other. Right. Or as constituted through each other, Um, which does a number of problematic things, the most obvious of which is that, of course, it it uh, assumes that migrants are non-Indigenous and non-Black when, in fact, we know historically and but, you know, even contemporarily uh, that a growing proportion, for example, of migrants coming from Mexico and Central America are indigenous people, right? They get subsumed into a kind of problematic pan-Latinx identity, which Mm. completely erases, um, in many cases, the specific relationship to settler colonialism of indigenous peoples who have been captured by Spanish states and Spanish colonialism. Right. And also, of course, of Black migrants and refugees who are, uh, you know, also moving, and especially globally. And so, you know, to, to make those separations erases Indigenous and Black people who are captured by border controls and who are, you know, again, disproportionately impacted by detention and deportation because of the ways in which state surveillance works and the ways in which anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity work um, means that, you know, they're at they're at the most impacted in the quote unquote undeserving category of migrants. Right. Right. Um, but in terms of the historical formation, I think it is important because then we see uh how the border really was made uh, through anti-Indigenous and anti-Black genocide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the the arguments that I try to make in Border and Rule is that in order for the border to be anti-migrant, in order for the border to be the kind of exclusionary anti-migrant regime that we know it to be today, it was necessarily anti-Indigenous and anti-Black, right? Like Mm -hmm. those are the foundational violences of the border, even if that is not um, the kind of mainstream, even left, depiction of the border today, and there's a lot of history there, so I won't try to I won't try to uh, repeat it all. But you know, in, in short, one of the ways in which the border worked against Indigenous peoples um, was to capture Indigenous nations. You know, the very formation of the U.S. Mexico border was born in conquest, um, the capture of 525,000 square miles of territory. After the annexation of Texas, and then you know after the after the 1848 or the prior to 1848, and what resulted in the 1848 treaty, and so you know that literally captured Indigenous nations and subsumed them into the, the U.S. nation state. Um, and today, the border continues to be an act of war on sovereign Indigenous nations whose land is is torn apart. By the border. Um, Tudoni Odom is one of the most militarized, one of the most militarized communities in the United States. And, you know, some of the surveillance towers in Tedoni Odom are, are built by Elbit, right. uh, who is, you know, an Israeli corporation who built their entire, um, their entire kind of business plan is built on providing nation states like Israel and the United States with a post 9-11 national security, Mm -hmm. anti-terror, you know, weapons and security systems. So, you know, we see these synergies with Palestine. We see these synergies with settler colonialism and the ways in which settler colonialism captured indigenous peoples and citizenship was a pillar of that by making citizenship contingent on private property ownership parceling out and partitioning indigenous lands into fee simple property um, and by forcing indigenous peoples to accept US citizenship, right? right. <laughs> to no longer be sovereign nations. Um, and this continues today, right? Because again, today, a lot of times indigenous people are subsumed into the rhetoric of racial minorities, um, which of course a lot of indigenous people will dispute, right? And say, this is not an issue of minoritization. This is an issue of conquest. But, and citizenship was a pillar there. And here, I think another historical piece that's really important is that, you know, some of the first fights against deportation in the United States that predate the fights that most of us know of. Right. So the fights that most of us know of are, for example, Chinese exclusion. So when we Mm -hmm. think of historical anti-immigrant legislation, we think of Chinese exclusion federally or at the state level. But very few of us know that some of the first battles against deportation were actually of indigenous peoples who had come in from the United, who had come in from Mexico and Canada. Um, so the Chippewas and the Yaquis, for example, and they were facing deportation as quote unquote foreign subjects, as quote unquote foreign Indians. Um, and that was some of the first battles against deportation were of indigenous peoples, right? Who were fighting and saying, you know, we'd We don't recognize this border. Like this is part of our homeland or, you know, these are our relatives. This is part of the the territory that we have historically and continue to affirm jurisdiction over or have relations with. And so, you know, that's, I think, an important piece to understand in report in relation to um, the history, some of the histories, the uncovered um, or, you know, lesser known histories of anti-deportation battles. And when it comes to anti-Blackness and the border, you know, shortly after 1848 and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, you know, there was the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. Right. And the entire premise of the Fugitive Slave Act was to capture um, Black people, right? It was to cap was for slaveholders and slave and, and slave catchers to capture enslaved people. And one of the first formations of the Border Patrol, before it existed formally as the Border Patrol, um, but its origins were. In vigilantes, Texas Rangers, you know, KKK, who patrolled the border not in order to keep migrants out, but in order to keep black people in, to prevent black people from escaping, right? From fleeing into Mexico or elsewhere. And so I think, you know, knowing the the history of how the border was founded in anti-indigenous and anti-black genocide, you know, again here in order to quote unquote deport indigenous people and to contain and control Black people, that that is how the violence of the border started to build up. It shows us, right, that again, in order for the border to exist as an anti-migrant pillar or as a a form of anti-migrant violence, it really has been built up through the state processes of anti-Black and anti-Indigenous genocide. And I think the last thing that's important about that is it again shows us that, you know, the border is not really about movement per se, right? Like the earlier conversation we were having about how Mm -hmm. The migrant crisis isn't about everybody who's moving. <laughs> it's intended to control certain people. You know, the fact that that these are the origins of the border, um, I think, further help illuminate that border controls are not only about controlling movement, but they're about controlling movement in certain ways, right? They're about making certain people precarious. They're about capturing labor and people in particular ways um, that upholds, you know, racial citizenship and racial capitalism,
0: To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalogue of patron-only episodes, and be the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops. With love, the Death Panel.